I've never led this before, but I really want to. Ooh, that's it. Whoa, why is that? You went backwards. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Good morning. This morning, uh, I, I want to start by making some announcements. Uh, I used to do that all the time, and I kind of I shared with our elders at the time that I'm not a big fan of making announcements. There we go. I think I'm on. Uh, uh, partly because I don't do them well. I get really awkward and fidgety when I have to make announcements because I know I'm forgetting something. Um, but I want to I remind everyone that we made an announcement last week, something that I think is a really good opportunity for our congregation, something that I, I hope uh, you're as excited about as I am. Um, two weeks ago, we had Milton Jones here from Christian Relief Fund. Milton shared about the work that they do in supporting uh, those who are in need in foreign countries. Uh, they have a sponsorship program. I, I asked Milton, I haven't received a response yet, but I believe our church ended up sponsoring 25 children who had not been sponsored before. Uh, those, that's the count I have. Milton might have more because some of you were sneaky and picked up like three or four and uh, decided to sponsor multiple children yourself. Um, I like that kind of sneakiness. I think it's pretty good. We also heard from him about their well drilling program. Uh, they drill freshwater wells, uh, primarily in Africa, but in other places as well. And we as a congregation have decided that we are committed to drilling a well wherever CRF wants to place one. And so uh, on March 3rd, we are asking the congregation to make a one-time offering of at least $5,000. This is something that might be difficult for one of us to do, but together, we can do it very easily. As a family, this is something that we should have no problem accomplishing. It does mean that we have to kind of pull together and plan for this to be something that we're in together. And I've had some really encouraging news over the course of this last week. We have uh, several individuals who are planning on doing a rummage sale to raise some money towards this. Uh, we have, and, and this is other than the elders and myself and maybe Norma, uh, I think brand new news to almost everyone in this room, we've had a member offer to make a matching contribution of up to the full $5,000 if we can raise it on the first Sunday. And so I'm encouraging you to consider how you might be able to give on March 3rd to drill a well. And I had made a joke at the end of the announcement saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we thought we were going to drill one well and we ended up drilling two? We could very much do that with this matching contribution that a member of our congregation has shared that they plan to do. And so I want to encourage you, consider bringing a special offering on March 3rd. This is an opportunity for us to give water to those who are in need. Uh, as we heard from Milt, they don't just drill a well and say, we're done, uh, come and get the water, we're leaving. They build a community around that well. They build it in a place where it's needed, but they also build it in a place where people will come and gather. They build a church there. They, they empower the people in that community to maintain the well so it becomes their property and their responsibility. And they have contractors that can come out and service the well if it gets beyond the knowledge and, and skill of those in the community. But this is the community's well. And so we have the opportunity not just to provide people with clean water, but to provide them ideally with living water. I keep thinking about that story of Jesus and the woman at the well where she says, 
what are you going to draw with? The well is very deep and you have, you have nothing. Milton has the ability to draw from the deep parts to give them the water that they need right now, but we also have the opportunity as a church in building this well to potentially give them the deeper water, the fresh water, the living water, the water that never runs dry. And so I want to encourage you to be as excited about this as I think our eldership is, as I am, as, as so many in our church community are. Um, be thinking about what you'll give. Be thinking about maybe giving in ways that push and stretch you so that maybe you might grow in your faith through your giving. I think it fits really well with the sermon series that we've been doing as we've talked about the way that Jesus addresses different groups of people in his time, his place, his culture. Jesus spends a lot of time interacting with uh, people who are on the outside, people who are marginalized, people in society who maybe don't have a voice. We talked about how Jesus interacted with women, how he interacted with children, how he interacted with the tax collectors, how he interacted with the euphemistic sinners, those who were abandoners of the Jewish faith and practices and customs, but maybe very much missed the community that they had lost in doing so. We talked about how Jesus interacted with the slaves and the poor and the, the words that he offered to his disciples. And I admitted last week, we don't see Jesus with a lot of people that we would label as slaves specifically. He addresses it when he's in Nazareth and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and says that he has come to set the captive free and that in their hearing, this has come to fulfillment. But it's Jesus' followers who then take the ethic of what Jesus taught and apply it to slavery within their own time. We talked about Philemon, and we talked about Onesimus and their, their relationship, and the way that there is a logical conclusion drawn from the teachings of Jesus about how we are called to interact with those who have been made captive, and maybe those we have made captive ourselves. And this week, I want to talk about a group of people that Jesus doesn't ever directly address. And it was very disturbing to me to, to go looking for where Jesus addressed this group of people. Sometimes when you're preaching, you have texts that you're working from, and you start from the text, and you ask, what are these texts saying? I couldn't do that in this case, and that's really disturbing for me as a preacher who likes to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, I guess. Uh, some of you are thinking you speak a lot more than the Bible does. <laughs> but I want to tell you this morning that... Are my slides in there? No slides. That's okay. I'm going to go slideless this morning. They must not have synced over from the other... We're going to look at the, the book of Matthew, where uh, we just read from a moment ago, and we're talking about the homeless. And when I say that you don't find the homeless a lot in the Bible, some of you are thinking, that's ridiculous. They're all over the place, right? As Christians, we have adopted the ethic of Christianity toward the poor, toward the hungry, towards those who are thirsty, towards those who are without clothing, towards those who are sick, towards those who are in prison, and we have applied it to a group of people that are almost impossible to find in Scripture. I say almost because I spent a lot of time and I did uncover a couple places that we might find the term homeless in Scripture. And, of course, the first place that most of us go or the passage that we just read. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. It's not going to be up on the screen because nothing's going to be up on the screen today. Matthew chapter 8. If you take a look at verse 18 and 20 where Corey read to us, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And birds of the air have nests, 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To modern ears, that sounds an awful lot like homelessness, right? Jesus says, I, I think you want to follow me, but I don't know that you really want to follow me because I, I have nowhere to lay my head. And that sounds like he's saying, I don't have a home. Now, here's the problem. Every time that we look at Jesus going to a different town and place, he has no problem inviting himself into someone else's home, being invited into their homes. We see that he ends up living with Peter for a little while, that he has places to literally, physically lay his head. But this is a euphemism that Jesus uses here. When he says, I have no place to lay my head, it's essentially him saying, I have nowhere where I find peace, shalom, rest. In this world, to be me or my followers means that you are restless. You are wandering. You're looking for something that has been promised but has not yet been fulfilled. If you really want to follow me and you want to experience a tremendous amount of restlessness, yeah, come do it. But I don't think that's what you want another disciple that follows him and, and says, uh, yeah, but let me go bury my father first. And Jesus says, let the dead deal with their own. There are things that as a follower of Jesus might be a comfort to you that you have to give up to follow him. And in fact, Jesus invites us into a great amount of discomfort it's going to be really hard for some of us to hear this morning because we also believe that Jesus invites us into the greatest peace and comfort that we can receive. Jesus invites us to experience the gift of the Holy Spirit, the comforter that he has promised, the one that he must go so that it can come. But Jesus invites us into discomfort. He tells us, if they persecute me, how much more will they persecute you? Blessed are you, when they curse you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you on my behalf. Jesus is very clear about the discomfort that comes with being his follower in a world that doesn't particularly like his teaching, doesn't particularly like the means by which he's going to offer salvation. But Jesus isn't saying he's homeless. I think sometimes we, we read this and it's a bit of a red herring. We're like, oh, well, you know, Jesus is homeless. One of my favorite songs is uh, by a guy named Sean McDonald, and he, he sang this song, um, I Need a Little More Jesus Inside of Me, and he says, don't you know Jesus was homeless wandering from city to city? And he sings this song, and it's beautiful, and it kind of stirs my heart and uh, gets me in the place to think about the humility of Christ. Jesus wasn't homeless, though. Jesus had many homes, Jesus also knows that there is a home that he is looking forward to, wandering toward uh, as, he, as he goes through the mission of life, as he finds the moment in which he offers salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection, suddenly preparing a place for us to all call home. Jesus is not homeless. He is a wanderer. He is restless. I mentioned last week that much of the life of Jesus is directly and intrinsically linked to the book of Isaiah. As you read through the, the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, he's constantly referring back to Isaiah. Jesus quotes Isaiah. Uh, he quotes you know, the, the book of Deuteronomy a little bit more, but he quotes Isaiah over and over and over again. 
His life is a reference to the teachings of Isaiah, the prophecies that Isaiah proclaimed. The, the whole conflict between God and the Israelite people, between God and his chosen people, is expressed in the life of Jesus. This tension that exists between who God calls his people to be and who they actually are. And the life of Jesus is a running commentary on the ways in which Israel has failed to live up to God's expectation for his people. And in, in Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 6, if you have your Bibles, you want to pull them out because it's not going to be on the screen again. Isaiah is writing, speaking, preaching to God's chosen people. And he's noted that they're really good at fasting. That they are great about observing a bunch of rituals and feasts and they look tremendously holy from the outside. It says, this is the fast you've chosen for yourselves. You, you put on sackcloth and ash on your heads and you, you bow and stoop really low. And it looks really righteous and holy, but that's not the fast I, your God, have chosen. In verse 6, he says, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of, the wickedness, of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? going to stop there for just a moment. I had to do a word search. I, I, I don't do this very often. I feel like I hold a lot of scripture in my head pretty well, but I had to sit down and like use the Google of the Bible, right, and search for the word homeless. This is the passage that came up. Nothing else in the Old Testament addressed homelessness, not in the English language anyway. In fact, the funny thing about this is the word that Isaiah chooses to use here is only used three times in the Old Testament. Once here in Isaiah and twice in Lamentations. In Lamentations chapter 1 verse 7, it says, Jerusalem, remember in the days of her affliction and wanderings. Marud, the Hebrew word wanderings. Remember, in the days of her affliction and wanderings, all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. The author of Lamentation is actually saying that Jerusalem wanders. Jerusalem being a code word for Israel. Lamentations 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. Marud, the wormwood and the gall. This word wanderings, it's it, again only used three times. We translate it as wanderings. It's marud in Hebrew. And Isaiah has chosen to use wandering poor in his writing. And we've translated it as homeless poor. Last week I had referenced the idea that homelessness in Israel should have technically been a solved problem. That under the law, 
no one should have been homeless. That homelessness, in fact, should have been a a remarkably foreign concept because you couldn't lose the family homestead. You You could give it up for a little while, sell yourself into servitude, pay off your debts, give away the land so someone else will tend it for a period of time, and then your children or grandchildren would receive it back after your debt had been paid. This was called Jubilee. The idea being that no one would be without land. And even if you sold the land, you kept the house on the land, and the person you sold the land to would work the fields. You couldn't be homeless according to the law. So where are these wandering poor from in the book of Isaiah? See, this is the problem. God gives the people a good law that provides for those who are poor, those who are outcast, those who are destitute, the foreigners who have moved into the country and have provision to have food. Part of the tithe was given to the priests, the widows, and the foreigners. Provision was a part of the law for everyone. No one should be hungry. No one should be thirsty. No one should be homeless. This was the law. But Isaiah looks around and he says, you know, you guys have found a part of the law that you really love. A part of the law that's about going and offering heaps and heaps of sacrifices and playing really impressive worship songs and dressing in ways that show your righteousness. Conversely to us today, uh, righteousness didn't look like putting on a three-piece suit and a tie and having you know cufflinks and stuff. It looked like putting on sackcloth and ashes. That was righteousness. And Isaiah says, you're all really good at that. You all do a great job. But that's not the fast I asked for. That's not the fast that God demands. The fast God demands is to care for the poor, care for those who are hungry, clothe those who are naked, provide shelter for those who are homeless. And and so I went and I looked and I tried really hard in Jewish history to find where there was discussion of how to address homelessness. And the, the best article I found said that the evidence that there was no homelessness until the time of Isaiah is in what the Israelite people thought of as temporary shelter. And there's this long discussion of what it looks like to build a booth for the Feast of Booths. It was a place where you could bring your finest items to prepare for the feast. You would bring them into the tent with you. Think of bringing grandma's fine china into like a Bymart one-man tent. That's how some of us think of it. That's not what they were doing. This was like bringing out the RV, right? You know, with the, the extending sides that you could dine like 15 people in. These were shelters that protected you from the elements. They were shelters that protected you from the cold. They were shelters that protected you from the heat. They were shade. They were covering. They were good for your whole family to live in for a period of time. But even that was recognized only as temporary shelter that no one should have to live in more than the festival of booths. 
if that was how they thought of temporary shelter, that everyone was expected to erect in order to spend time together in a festival that God had prescribed, what must the bare minimum adequate permanent shelter for any human being look like? Israel was to be a homelessness-less state. And at some point before Isaiah arrives on the scene, they have substituted worship, worship, for the care of the homeless. And this is distressing to God. It breaks his heart. And in a passage that echoes the one that we read last week in addressing the slave and the poor and the blind and the captive, Isaiah calls out that Israel has neglected the wandering poor. A group of people that they don't even have a word for. So he has to, has to mash two words together to get what we get. In our country, we are so aware of the homelessness epidemic. There is nowhere in this country you can go to where you don't find the homeless. At one point, it was confined to our large cities. I, I remember uh, it, it was this big shock to a lot of people when small towns started having like homeless populations, right? We kind of thought that was something that was like a Portland issue or a San Francisco issue, or maybe it was something that occurred only in uh, you know, the East Coast big towns or something. We have homeless in Newburgh. We have people who have no shelter to live in, nothing that we would consider a permanent residence. We have people who are homeless living in Dundee. We have people who are homeless living in Amity. We have people who are homeless living in every town from here to the California border and well beyond. It's not a Portland problem. It is a Newburgh problem. But more importantly, it is a human problem. How do we, as Christians, not respond to something that was an aberration in the history of God's people? See, historically, Christians have seen moments where there are issues, trials being faced by society. One of the reasons Christianity grew so greatly was that when the plagues of uh, uh, various um, diseases hit Rome, Christians didn't leave. They stayed and they tended to those who were sick. They adopted their children when they died. They built the first hospitals to bring the sick closer to them to ensure that they had care. When homelessness in children became a real issue, something that was beyond just a handful of children who had been orphaned and then will adopt them into families because each one of us has room for another child. During the plague, the great plague, Christians founded orphanages, orphans' homes, headed up by adults 
who cared for and loved those children well in place of their own parents. In moments of need and crisis and trial, Christians have risen to the occasion to apply the ethic that God has given to them to new and unique situations for the sake of the kingdom. See, in Jesus' time, again, homelessness was kind of not really a thing. It was, it was something that a person could find themselves in, right? A person could become homeless, but usually it was a very temporary situation because your family would invite you in. They had the space. They had room for you. Now, in Rome, there were plenty of homeless people. In Rome, that big Babylon up north, there were a lot of people that couldn't, couldn't find shelter for themselves, but not in Israel. They heard the words of Isaiah and they addressed it when they came back because they learned in captivity how to care for the poor. Did it mean that they did it perfectly all the time? No, absolutely not. Jesus addresses it over and over again. But you know what you don't find in first century Judea, in first century Palestine, in first century Israel, is a bunch of homeless people. Jesus doesn't address them directly because it's not a situation he's facing. And we're usually perfectly fine extrapolating things Jesus doesn't address directly based on other things that we read about, but sometimes we have trouble doing that with a case like the homeless. How do we, as Christians, address the problem of homelessness? Isaiah says that when Israel has figured this out, when they have learned to provide for the poor, when they have learned to set loose the captive, when they have learned to bring those wandering poor into their own homes, then, and only then, shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Israel, when you figure this out, when you learn that this is what I've longed for from the very beginning, I'll be there. I'll hear you in your distress. I'll make sure that other people see what you are doing. And I'll be glorified for it. See, one of the thrusts of the book of Isaiah is that if Israel were ever to get its act together, no nation would be able to look at them and say anything less than that they serve a great and glorious God. If you remember, as we read through the book of Deuteronomy this summer, one of the resounding statements that Moses makes to the people is that if they live out this good law that God has given to them, all of the lands around them are going to look and say, in what nation is there a law so righteous? What people live so close to their God as this? And they will glorify your God, he tells them. From the beginning of Israel to what some might consider the end of them as a, a fixed 
sole independent state, the message is the same. If you keep the will of God, if you provide for those who have nothing, everyone around you will look and say, how great is your God? How near to you he is. You call to him and he hears you. So when Jesus uses that phrase, you are the light of the world, I think this is a reference back here. You, my disciples, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It says that God has given us good works, and when we do them, people will look at them and say, glory to God. I frequent a lot of places where there are individuals, this is mostly online, but sometimes in person, who have a real bone to pick with Christianity because of how little we seem to do for the poor. Now, I want to be clear. I think there are a lot of people in this room that do a lot for those who are poor, have done a lot for people who are homeless. But our culture and Christianity today oftentimes looks a lot more like a fast of righteousness in the eyes of man and not a lot of fasting towards the well-being of others. Again, I want to say in this room, I think there are a lot of people who do this well individually. I want us to be a church that does it well together. This is something that we're starting, something that we have done historically, something that we've kind of laxed on in the last few years. COVID made us a, a little soft made some of us a little soft in places we weren't before. It made us a little less excitable about the needs of others. And I think it's time for the Newburgh Church of Christ to address these problems in the city around us so that God will say, your light is shining. I hear you in your distress. Here I am. I hope that as we, we get ready for this big well project, that it maybe it begins the process of us being charitable givers, people who are ready to give towards good things. Think of what our church could do on a regular basis ongoing basis if we had just a little bit more funds. Uh, I've heard it said before that we kind of punch above our weight. If you were to look at the, the ways in which uh, our budget is applied, a lot of it goes, goes towards ministry, and, and that's even with PGE raising you know, electric prices by 16% this last year. We do a good job of using a lot of our money to go towards good things, but we could give more to do more. And I want to encourage us as a congregation to ask, are there ways in which we can address the homelessness problem in Newburgh, this human problem, that maybe we've just been waiting on somebody else to do it? Are there ways that we as a congregation can give a home to those who do not have one, to invite them into the family that we are a part of so that they have a place to belong and maybe so they're not sleeping on the streets? The last passage I want to look at 
Matthew chapter 20, uh, 25. This is a very familiar one to most of us. Jesus is talking about, look, when I come back again, and the disciples are like, you're going to leave? When I come back again, I'm sitting in, in all my glory. I'm going to separate the people left and right. And I'm going to look at the sheep and tell them what they've done well. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That sounds pretty nice. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Of course, they're going to be shocked. They're going to look around and say, uh, okay, I remember helping some hungry folks out and giving some water to those who were thirsty and I went to the prison all the time to visit people, to visit people right? The Monopoly board just visiting section over there. Spent a lot of time in prison as a visitor. But I don't remember seeing you there. And the king will look at them and say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Conspicuously absent from this list are the homeless. Which might not make this the greatest proof text for my point today unless I think we're people who are about the ethic of Christ and not just reading a page and checking a bunch of boxes. If Jesus were to return tomorrow and look at us individually, might he ask us, where were you when I was sleeping on Portland Road? Where were you when I had a fire behind a dumpster outside of Safeway? Where were you when I was sleeping in a tent in the woods behind George Fox University? And he'd say, well, we never saw you doing that, Jesus. And he says, well, you saw someone doing it. My challenge to us this morning is to ask ourselves, how would Jesus respond to this problem? How would Jesus go about mending the hurt, the affliction that these individuals are facing, and are we partnering with him in that? Because the whole point is to have a life in the shape of Jesus, right? That wherever we go, people look at us and say, I don't know their name, but they look a lot like Jesus to me. And if our response to the homeless is, I don't know what to do with them, they may not be seeing Jesus in us. So this morning, I, I, I don't have the solution to the problem, but I think there is a problem, and I think the overarching solution to most problems, to all problems that we are called to address is, this is going to sound really cheesy, what would Jesus do? I challenge us as a congregation, I challenge us as individuals to ask ourselves, how do we respond like Christ to those who are homeless in our own town? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want so desperately for homelessness to be so conspicuously absent around us 
that when people go back to read our old bulletins and uh, to, to ask questions about what the Newburgh Church of Christ did about the homelessness problem in, in the world, that all they can find is a bunch of uh, statements about inviting people to come and sleep in their homes and to eat meals at their tables. And, and the word homeless just disappears from our lexicon because we've addressed it so well. But Father, we're not there yet. And so we need your spirit to guide us, to give us wisdom, to guide our path and set our footsteps. And Father, where we lack the wisdom in how to appropriately address this situation, we pray that you will give us wisdom, that you'll fill those who lead within this church with a heart for those who are lost and wandering and poor and for us to look like Jesus to them so that light might shine out of us and people would see who we serve and glorify you. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if you need someone to pray for you, if you need someone to walk alongside you, if you need someone to address your homelessness, we want to be those people for you. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. I would be happy to sit and visit with you, to pray with you. Our elders are here today. They'd be happy to sit and visit and pray with you. Uh, and, and we have some ladies here who would be happy to do the same as well. If you have any need of the church or you want to seek baptism, if you want to commit yourself to a life in the shape of Jesus, I want to invite you to pursue that today. Um, we have a baptistry right back there through that cutout in our wall. Uh, we'd be happy to baptize you. We think it's a, a good thing to do. We think it's the right thing to do. We think it's the way that we begin our walk with Christ to be conformed to his image. If you have any need, uh, join me at the back of the auditorium as we stand and sing.